When Julie and I first met each other, it was not love at first sight. Uh, our story is not the kind where I saw her or she saw me and immediately we said to ourselves, that's the person I'm going to marry. Uh, when we first met and even then as we began to get to know each other, I wasn't particularly interested in her and uh, she had a, an even more negative reaction toward me. She found me abrasive and arrogant, which at the time was probably pretty accurate. Um, we knew each other for two years before we started dating. And over the course of those two years, our friendship grew gradually. And uh, we found that we began to do a lot of things in big groups together. And as time went on, the size of those groups got smaller and smaller and smaller. Until one summer, we realized that um, the size of the group was consistently two people, uh, me and her. Uh, and I remember, though, the first time that I thought of Julie differently as something more than a friend. And in, in that moment, it really was as though my entire perspective shifted and like the world kind of turned halfway on its axis. And, and my priorities, my focus, my desires, my thoughts were completely transformed. And it literally happened in a very short period of time. In Psalm 86, as we continue to look at this prayer in desperate times, uh, we're going to see a change in the psalmist. We're, we're going to see a change in, in David himself. Uh, re remember, this is a psalm of desperation. It's a prayer in desperate times. David crying out to God because he's in great need of God's help and intervention. The first section I called a cry for help. And in it, David is struggling with his deep need, and he's desperate for God to hear him. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for to you I lift up my soul. He's, he's just desperate in his crying out for help. In the second section that we looked at last week, I called it the helper. Because it shows David pausing in the midst of his struggle, looking up and out of his immediate situation to gaze upon the helper, to look at God. And David shares in the psalm what he sees of God, God's absolute uniqueness, his incomparable acts, and his supreme authority. And the third section that we're going to look at today, I'm calling a change in the petitioner. So a change in the person who is asking. A change in David. This section is a direct response to what David sees and recognizes in God himself. He struggles, he struggles, he struggles. Then he pauses and looks up and contemplates God himself. And then today what we'll see is a result, a change in him because of that contemplation. His immediate desperate situation continues to take a back seat as he responds to what he has experienced as he meditates on who God is. And so in this response is where we'll see that change. Like, like, like the change in me when for the first time I thought of Julie as something more than a friend and everything shifts. So David, as he looks to God, everything will shift. We're going to see this profound change in, in his focus, in his perspectives, 
even a change in his requests. He starts asking for different things. While, while he's still in the middle of the crisis, we need to understand this. He, he hasn't, it's not because the, the desperate thing is over. It's not because he's now been saved so he can, oofa, that's, that's done, now I can relax. No, it's still in the middle of it. So as we look at these three verses today from Psalm 86, I want you to note the change in David through the change in the kind of requests that he's making of God. And then following the requests, there are commitments to God that he makes. So keep in mind those two things. How are his requests different? And then how are his commitments different? He makes two requests and affirms four commitments. And uh, you'll, you'll see the difference, I think, pretty rapidly in, in, in how his requests have changed. So I'll be reading, I'll start at the beginning of the psalm again so we get the context, but the verses on which we will focus today are verses 11 through 13. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. David's first request after considering the greatness of God is that God would teach his ways to David. So note the change already. At, at the beginning of the psalm, David's requests were for God to change his situation. Now he's asking God to change his heart. He's asking God for something deeper, for God to reveal more of himself to David. So even in the midst of desperate situations, our greatest, deepest needs are still met in God himself. And once David reflects on who God is, he has a hunger, or it's a growing hunger in him for how he can please God. God, show me your ways. Show me what pleases you. This is what David is asking. And he follows this request with his first commitment. Lord, show me your ways. And what's the commitment? I'll follow them. The language he uses is, I will walk in your truth. Show me your ways. And as you do, I will walk in your truth. I think there's often a temptation for us to gather knowledge about God. Knowledge about the Bible. Knowledge about theology. But we, we gather it just to store it away so that we simply know more. 
But through David, we see that a revelation of God's will comes with an implicit response of obedience. David does not ask, teach me your ways so I can know them. He says, teach me your ways so I can follow them. If we're going to ask God to reveal himself, we need to be prepared to act on what he reveals. Uh, if, if I'm terribly ill and, and I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, here's exactly what's wrong, here's exactly what you need to do, and I leave and I say, wow, that's good to know. I'm glad I know that. But I don't act on that information, I don't follow his recommendations, and that knowledge just intellectually doesn't do me any good. So if we go to the Lord, the Great Shepherd, if we go to the Lord, God Almighty, if we go to the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, if we go to Him, asking Him to reveal His will, asking Him to show us His ways, there, there's, there's a, a preparation that needs to be there in our hearts, a submission to say, if you show me, I will do it. I will follow your will. And we have to be prepared for for what God's self-revelation is going to require of us. And David makes that clear commitment. Show me the way and I will walk in it. Often we, we want God to show us his way so that we can keep it as an option. You know, show me your ways, show me your will, because I want to know what all my options are before I make the decision. But if we ask for God to reveal himself, we need to be ready to obey that revelation. The second request that David makes after encountering God it's, is even more personal and more intimate and more transformative because he asks God to deal with the core of his being. He asks, give me an undivided heart. So right at the very center of who David is, David's recognizing that his heart is not whole, it's divided, and he's asking God, give me an undivided heart. When we first moved into the apartment in which we live today, we had an interesting water problem. And this was the problem. If any individual were taking a shower in the house and any other source of water in the whole apartment were turned on, it could be cold water, it could be hot water, it could be in a bathroom, it could be in the kitchen, one of two things would happen to that, actually it was usually just one thing would happen to the person in the shower immediately the water would go ice cold, right away. And so uh, you would hear these shouts of alarm through the apartment when someone's showering, and you would forget, you know, you'd forget. Or they didn't tell you. You know, my sons didn't tell me they were taking a shower, or my wife may have told me, but maybe you, you know, forget. Uh, and I'd turn on the water in the kitchen, and, hey, you hear this wife, hey, turn off the water. I don't know exactly what was happening in all the pipes, but this is like what I like to imagine was happening because it fits the illustration for this passage. So uh, someone who actually fixed it, Glenn Charlton, he can tell you what was actually happen happening. But as I imagine it, there's one central line with that water. And there are all these other lines branching off of it. And so while that central line is undivided, when those other lines are opened up, then it takes the pressure of that water and where it was going in the same direction toward one goal, it begins to siphon it off and it loses its pressure and it loses its heat, it loses its power, it loses its focus. 
And so a divided heart would be similar. Its energy, its purpose, its focus, its goals and priorities are not going to be consistent and unified. They're not going to be directed entirely toward the Lord and His pleasure and His will. A divided heart is going to have distractions and other concerns and cares that are drawing its attention away from the best focus. And after gazing upon God, David's desires have changed. He wants his heart to be unified completely in seeking God, that all his energies, attitudes, his longings and honor and worship would be directed toward God and godly things. So a unified, undivided heart doesn't have its energies and its focus channeled off to ungodly things. It is wholly committed to bringing the focus of who that person is to the throne of God, to His will, to godly things, to things that please Him, to joys that are His joys, to, um, to attitudes that are, that are His attitudes. So David follows up this second request with the second commitment. He asks for an undivided heart so that he would fear God's name. So when you read that to yourself, emphasize the word your, not the word fear. That I may fear your name. Because in the context, that's the emphasis. It's a commitment to turn that undivided heart only to God. David's committing to the Lord. He's saying, you give me that undivided heart. I will not turn that undivided heart away from you. I will not fear another person. And remember, the way the word fear of the Lord is used, we've, or that expression, we've dealt with it pretty extensively not too long ago. It doesn't primarily mean to be afraid, a fear that draws us away, but it's a fear that, that causes us to, to walk closely with the source. It's a fear that respects so profoundly the holiness of God that we do become afraid of being away or out from under that holiness. So it's a fear that keeps us close to God. It's not a fear that separates. So David's saying, I will not direct that kind of fear in my, in my life toward a person, toward a thing, a future, a need, an idol, basically, is what he's, he's talking about. I, I will not give my fear, I will not give the focus of that undivided heart to an idol. But I will fear your name alone, Lord God. Now, if we repeat these requests, if we pray these requests on our own behalf for ourselves, we have to be careful about falling into a trap. And uh, it's the trap of blaming God for our disobedience. So, Lord, I've prayed and I've asked you for an undivided heart, and you clearly have not given me an undivided heart, therefore I'm going to continue in sin until you give me the undivided heart. When you give me an undivided heart, then I'll fear your name alone. Meaning it's like God's fault. Uh, a few years ago I shared an illustration with you that I heard. It's not my story, it's another story, but... Um, at a family picnic, there were two people that were uh, a child and an adult, and the adult was trying to help the child play baseball or, or some form of that. So the adult was very gently tossing this ball to the child so that the child could hit it. And it was at the end of a long day, it was a picnic, it was outside, the child was tired, exasperated, and at one point, 
It was the child's grandmother, I think, who was playing with him and uh, was just tossing it very gently, doing everything that she could to make it easy for the child to hit. And the child kept missing, and finally, in exasperation, the child throws the bat down and says, Grandma, you missed my bat again! Uh, and so this can be the attitude that we have toward the Lord, where we're saying, God, give me an undivided heart. So it's, it's your fault, God, that I'm sinning. Because you, if you had given me an undivided heart, I wouldn't be sinning. I, 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 would, I would turn it all toward you. But you haven't done that. Now, we, we need to understand here that when God is working transformation in us, there's, it's a cooperative relationship. God is always the initiator. God is always the transformer. He's the one who does it. But we are invited to not resist his transformation but to cooperate and open ourselves up to it. Uh, about a year ago, I had hernia surgery. And I'll tell you, I could not have done that surgery on myself. I, I could not. Um, I wouldn't want to. But after the surgery, the doctor gave me very specific instructions for how I was to care for myself, things that I needed to do, and more importantly, things that I should not do, uh, in order for that transformation <laughs> to endure, to, to last, so that I would not re-injure myself or reopen the incision or cause the hernia to explode outward again. Now, if, if I had chosen not to follow those instructions and therefore had the, the hernia recur, I could not then turn to the doctor. I don't have the right to go to him and say, you messed up. You didn't do the surgery. I mean, you know, I, I paid all this money, you did all this, and here it is again, you know. So there's a cooperative reaction where God takes the initiative, God transforms, but he, as he's transforming, he's saying, my child, do not resist my transformation and Learn to walk in this transformation. Cooperate with me as I change you. And this is the attitude that we're seeing with David. Give me an undivided heart then I will, that I might fear your name and your name alone. The final two commitments that David makes in this section. So we, we've already seen his two requests and two commitments. But he has two more commitments that he makes um, to God. The final two commitments come in the form of what we call a parallel couplet. Parallelism is another very common Hebrew poetic device. And you probably have seen it often as you've read scripture, even if you didn't know that was the name of it. Because it is all throughout biblical prophecy and biblical songs and wisdom literature like Proverbs, or Ecclesiastes, and of course, the Psalms. So a parallel couplet is formed by two statements that, at first glance, are very similar in nature. And, while this, and the second statement actually just sounds like a repetition of the first statement in, in different words. But in actuality, the second statement pushes the concept forward by playing a twist on the first statement. So in this context, these are the two statements. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. That's the first line of the parallel couplet. 
The second line is, I will glorify your name forever. So we look at those and we say, wow, those sound, the concept of those two lines is, is very similar. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. And we might even think, why did David need to put both of those in there? Couldn't we just move on with one? But we need to find the, the twist so that we understand the point the psalmist is trying to make. A commitment to praise God with all his heart is a logical progression. It progresses logically from his request to be given an undivided heart. I, I, I receive an undivided heart, so I praise you with all my heart. It's, it's logical. The second line is David's commitment to glorify God forever. And the twist is found in the interplay between those two verbs, praise and glorify. To praise has to do with what one says and what one thinks. Generally speaking, I, I'm simplifying it. Praise is deliberate. It is vocalizing or intentionally rehearsing either through words or, or song or thoughts or writing the greatness of God. It's what David did in the second section of the psalm. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. That's praise. And it focuses on God's, on, on rehearsing, on remembering, on recounting, on restating who God is, the nature of his character, and the things that he has done in the past. That's praise. But then he moves from praise to the concept of glorify. And glorify is a broader term than praise. Glorifying is all-encompassing. It includes praise. Praise, intentional praise, does glorify God. But glorifying also has to do with all that we are, with all that we think or do or choose and say. We can glorify God while we're at our jobs and even through our jobs. We can glorify God with what we think about, with how we treat others, with how we, with how we lead our families and how we interact and, and, and raise our kids. Uh, with what we listen to and what we watch, with how we treat others, with how we use our money, with how we care for each other, with how we share God's truth, with how we evangelize, if you want to use that word. There, these are all ways in which we glorify God. So the, the glorifying God encompasses every aspect of who and what we are as his children. It covers all of life. And in this couplet, then, David commits to both, and he challenges us to both as well. Praise God with all our hearts, and then beyond that, not only praise, but move beyond that to glorify his name, not just now, but forever. And this, this final commitment emphasizes, it, it makes, brings a new, it makes stark the change in David's focus. So from being concerned primarily with the desperation of his circumstance, He's now thinking primarily of God and how he can please and glorify him. And I want us to see that shift. Once David pauses to consider God, God's identity, God's power, and his actions, 
David has changed. And I want to emphasize this. David does not change himself. And we often, we sometimes want to jump to the change. And again, forgetting that the person that brings about the change is God. So if, if all we take from here is like, oh, I need to change what I ask for. I need to change in my commitments. I need to change in the way, the things I ask God for in desperate times. That's missing the point. That's not where we start. Where did David start? By simply pausing in his desperation to praise God. That's where he started, to think about him, to meditate on him, to tell himself again who God is and how powerful and wonderful and all the authority and God's marvelous deeds and his uniqueness. And he just rehearses those to himself. And it's through that that an internal change comes. It's like the illustration I've used before. When you're hot outside and you step into an air-conditioned room, it's not your effort that cools you down, right? You're not thinking, okay, cool off, cool off, cool off. You know, I'm telling all the, the, the neurons in my brain and then the different nerve endings in my body to feel cooler. You know? No, it's the entering into the presence of the cold air that naturally brings about the coolness. God, we come to God in our desperation. We ask. I want to emphasize this. There's, the, the point of this psalm is not that, oh, you shouldn't ask God for what you need. That's not it. That's not the point. But it's that in our desperation, we also need to take the time intentionally to simply reflect on who he is. To preach to ourselves who God is to be quiet and think. Engage our imaginations. Read the Psalms if that helps you. I think it does help me. Use the three previous verses as you consider who God is. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. Start listening to them. What are your marvelous deeds? What are the marvelous deeds that God has done that are both universal and then also the personal ones? So David has been changed through the contemplation of the person of God. Now we come to the closing statements, the last verse of these three verses. And it's another parallel couplet. It, in a sense, defines why David is, has made these requests and why he has made these commitments. And the first statement is very simple. For great is your love toward me. I just want to pause for a moment, a few moments of silence, and just rest there. Rest there. For great is your love toward me. Not great is your condemnation toward me. Not great is your conviction toward me, though it may be at times. Not great is your um, guilt trip on me. Great is your love for me. So very much has been written and sung about the love of God for his creation generally and his children specifically that I really don't have much to add here. Except to remind us of the situation in which David is affirming this truth. And I'm going to give you a quick preview here. 
We've been dancing around it. I keep saying, you know, David hasn't said why his situation is so desperate yet. Uh, but in the next verse in Psalms, he does that. And, and so I'm going to give you a, a, a preview because we'll be talking about it next week. But we need to know this context because it puts the fact of David's sense of God's love for him um, in perspective. Verse 14, he says, The arrogant are attacking me, O God, and a band of ruthless men seeks my life. Uh, the, the newer NIV edition from 2011, I like the way that they translate it because it's much more to the point. Arrogant men are attacking me, O oh God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. That's the point. And I may be wrong, but I don't think that any of us right now are in that specific situation. I don't think any of us are being hunted down like a dog, like an animal to be slaughtered. Um, this was David's situation. He's on the run. People are literally trying to kill him. So now those first verses might come into better focus for us and understand uh, why David is praying the way he's praying. But it's in this situation that David says, for great is your love toward me. It's hard for me. <laughs> it, it's hard for all of us, I think, to remember God's love when we're desperate. Because we may not feel loved at that moment. Or from, from a human perspective, our, our, our natural reaction is, if you loved me, you would change the situation. God, if you loved me, if you really did, then this would be different. I wouldn't be suffering. I wouldn't be in pain. But the desperation of our circumstances or your circumstance, the, the suffering, the pain, the confusion, it never changes the fact that if you are a child of God, you are beloved of the Almighty. Great is his love toward you. And we see the foundation of David's faith in the second half of this couplet you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. Uh, so David deliberately remembers the greatest blessing that God has ever given him and that he could ever give anyone, which is redemption, salvation, and eternal life. And listen, there are some commentators who say, well, David, this is not a statement of eternal life. This is just a statement of David's faith that even though he hasn't been delivered from these ruthless men yet, he's going to be. I don't see that. This is talking about eternity. David has just said, I will glorify your name forever. If God's not going to give him eternal life, then how's he going to glorify God's name forever? So this is in the context of David remembering, okay, this is desperate because there are people chasing me down that want to kill me. They want to destroy my earthly life. But you know what? Lord, great is your love toward me. And even if those people succeed, in killing me, you've delivered me from the depths of the grave. Even if they take away my physical life, I'm going to remember and celebrate that my ultimate life is in your hands and it's forever. You've already done that for me. These ruthless people may in fact succeed in taking my life. They didn't, by the way, not in this context. 
<laughs> right? We know that as we look back on history. David didn't know that was going to be the outcome when, when he was in it. Um, so he chooses to praise God for the blessing he's already been given. And that's a hard thing for us. It's a hard thing for us when we have such heavy needs that are just right there hovering over us or we feel like we're on the precipice or we're in depression or we're, whatever it may be. And it's so heavy and it's hard for us to praise God for what he's already done. And for even though I'm going through suffering now, I know, I know the end game. I know the final story. And even now, great is your love toward me. Great is your love toward me. And this goes along with the song that we sang last Sunday that Kevin led us in. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? I, that's the line. It's all, thank you for saving me. What can I say? That's the greatest that's the greatest gift. It's the greatest salvation. It's the answer. It's the hope. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? The shift in David's focus and thinking, the change from panic about his situation to the awe of God's being and, and the desire to please him doesn't happen in a vacuum. As I said earlier, we can't bring that transformation about in our own hearts. That's God's realm alone. But we can by our choices, by our decisions, by our commitments, by our attitudes, we can open up avenues for God's change to come. This is a, an image that's often used when people speak of the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines don't transform you. Spiritual disciplines provide an avenue or they open up avenues for the blessing of God to, to flow into your life. So again, I, I kind of already used a similar example but if I lie on the couch eating Twinkies my whole life and I keep lying there saying, uh, you know, watch, binge watching Netflix and eating sugar and saying, God, make me a great athlete. Make me a great athlete. I'm just waiting, God, for, for your transformation of my body. Um, that's, that's never going to happen. Now, even if we're speaking athletically, even if I were to take some steps toward it, I probably would never have been a great athlete. But the point is, this is an illustration. What are we saying with this? That we open up avenues into our hearts for God to act. What was the avenue that David opened? How did David do this? I've said this repeatedly. He stopped, even in his desperation, and he considered the greatness of God. That's a discipline. You see, that is something that we can choose to do even if we don't feel like it. Because remember, we're not pursuing a feeling. We're pursuing a being. God himself, his son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, so if we, the, the challenge to us then is that no matter what we are facing, to be intentional that we take time, whether it's in the middle of our prayers, whether it's in our quiet time, which, whether it's at a different point, but consistently where all we're doing is praising. All we're doing is considering who God is. The Psalms are a great help with this. If you need guidance, read through the Psalms because there is so much praise there. There is so much reflection upon God's power. 
The heavens declare the glories of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day by day they utter speech. Night by night they show forth knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. This is, this is scripture. This is psalm. This is David reflecting on, on God's power in his works. This isn't about ignoring our needs. It's not about saying, stop asking God to provide. No, because God has already said, in all things with prayer and thanksgiving, by, by, by prayers and petitions, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So he's not saying, don't ask. But I will say, don't only ask. Praise. And gaze upon the Lord as he has revealed himself to us. One way that we do praise, actually, and one way that we do glorify God, one way we remember him and what he's done is through communion. That's actually the vocabulary that scripture uses. Do this in remembrance of me. We are gazing upon him and his sacrifice and what he's done. In doing this, you proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. These are actions of praise, actions of glorification. So uh, I invite you there in your homes to um, prepare uh, your communion elements. And as I did last week, I'll, I'll be very clear about letting you know when to eat the bread and, and when to drink the juice so that we'll all be doing it together at the same time.